Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. What must it have been like to have flown aerial missions over the Allied troops as they stormed the beaches on D-Day? And how perilous it must have been in the weeks, the months, even the years prior as the American 8th Air Force attempted to precision bomb Germany into submission. I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and to find answers to these questions, I've invited Second World War veteran Charles Chuck Richardson back onto the podcast. This is Chuck's second time on Warfare, and it's an honour and a privilege to welcome him back. Now 100 years strong, Chuck was a radioman and a gunner on B-17s flying out of Framlingham, England during the Second World War, and his new book, 35 Missions to Hell and Back, explains exactly what he went through. As we mark a remarkable 79 years since D-Day, it is a true privilege to hear from Chuck and his researcher and editor Emily Wilson, both of whom offer a vivid portrait of duty, courage and hardship on D-Day and the bravery of the greatest generation. The 8th Air Force had bases all over the European theater, so I'm sure a lot of these experiences would be particularly of note to those viewers from your part of the the globe. Absolutely, and all over the world as well. And you were based in Norfolk, weren't you, Chuck? Why don't we tell us what your role was in Norfolk, where you were stationed and who you were stationed with? Framlingham, England, which is about 90 miles north of uh, of London. And if you're familiar with England... uh, not too far from a place called the Wash. I know the Wash very well. As a, as a boy, I'd be out there on the uh, on the marshes, picking bits of sandfur, going through that area. It terrified me so much because the sea would rise so quickly. But uh, yes, I know the Wash very, very well. And so many bases of the US 8th Air Force were out there. Which bombing group were you part of? I was with 390th Bomb Group and uh, 571st Squadron. We were happy to say that our officers taught us, by all means, do not bomb where you're going to kill civilians if you can help it. But the Germans were very secretive, and in the case of the engine for their rocket planes, things like that, they would plant in the middle of the city. It's very difficult to bomb a place like that without killing innocent people. And Munich was one of those. 
we bombed as best we could. We had was called a blanket bomb. That is, when the lead bomber dropped smoke bombs, then when the rest of the planes behind him got to that point, they dropped their bombs. So that's as close as it could come, particularly when it was clouded. Yeah, this is one of the things I remember reading about quite a lot, is that these technologies, like the Norden bombsite, they worked really well in test conditions during the interwar period. You know, if you're out on uh, some parts of the American plains somewhere in beautiful blue sky conditions, dropping your bombs without having enemy flak against you, without that European weather hindering you, and without the smoke from previous bomb raids making you blind, um, it's easy to drop the bomb on the target. But Europe is a, a different environment, isn't it, Chuck? That's exactly right. We could do very well at uh, bombing ranges in Texas where the skies were clear and we weren't uh, being shot at. We could do very well, but uh, you get over a target with, with planes shooting at you and anti-aircraft shooting at you and uh, weather conditions were not good. It's amazing that we hit the target at all. The history books have not always been kind to these ideas of American precision bombing, calling them quite frivolous or naive. And I know that Winston Churchill was not a big fan of this idea of American daylight precision bombing, and neither were those in the RAF. When it comes down to this daylight precision bombing idea, I mean, do you think it was successful or if it was worth the risk? Because the idea behind this, of course, was that if American bombers could go out in daylight, they had an increased chance of hitting the target with that purported much-desired ambition to achieve precision. But in reality, it led to an awful lot of American servicemen being downed, being killed, being injured, and an awful lot of planes being lost. Exactly. We lost more men in those operations than any other part of the service during World War II. More men were killed in action, flying, than any other way including all the ground force losses. So uh, you can see from that that we paid a dear price. But we did some good, and particularly when the invasion came, we were absolutely phenomenal in cutting off the bridges and the, and the roads, the railroads behind the lines where they couldn't move their troops fast enough to stop us. I was privileged to see some of those films. I'm convinced that we did our job. We may have not done it like you would on paper, but it helped win the war. See, that's really interesting to me. So as opposed to a strategic precision bombing doctrine, and by that I mean a broader strategy to destroy the enemy's war-making capacity so it doesn't have the ability to fight the teeth, the weapons it needs to engage in battle, the bombing of oil refineries, for example. For you, you think the key success of precision bombing doctrine came down to more of a tactical precision, like those around D-Day, where you were able to cut off the enemy's retreat. Yes, that's correct. Exactly. You've got a good grip on uh, actuality there. I've seen us miss terribly, and I, but I've seen us hit exactly in many cases. I'm actually really intrigued to go into a bit more detail about how you were involved in D-Day. Would you mind taking us through your involvement, Chuck? He wanted to read a note 
that he wrote in his diary from D-Day, June 6, 1944. Yes, please. That'd be fantastic. Okay. The target coastal defenses and reinforcement positions. Munitions were 4,852 tons of multipurpose bombs. The results were good to excellent. Losses were four bombers and 25 fighters. Note, it is worth noting that this day, June 6, 1944, began one of the most important battles in the history of mankind, and I had been a part of it. We witnessed it firsthand from a grandstand seat. The scope and the horror of it all will go with me to the grave. But the glory of it all will live as long as, as we can read and write about the ongoing history of the planet Earth, which is what you're doing. On that D-Day, Wednesday, June 6, 1944, on D-Day, General James John Doolittle and Major General Earl Partridge, the commander and deputy commander of the 8th Air Force, it is unlikely that any other fire plane formation ever carried this much rank. And the two generals flew back towards England to try to locate a hole in the cloud so they could go back to their to, on a low level. General Doolittle little found a hole, but General Partridge did not. And the radio contact between the two were lost. Doolittle flew back to the beaches at 1,500 feet and observed the invasion for an hour and a half before returning to Bovington in England. Thankfully, the twin fuselage of the P-38 was easily recognized by the gunners on the ships and Doolittle's plane was not shot down. Doolittle was a, a brave man. I mean, going back to the Doolittle raids and then all the way through to this this point on D-Day, it does not surprise me that he was up in the air at this point. Do you remember much of the sights and sounds of when you flew over the channel? I mean, did you see much happening on the beaches as you were going over or was your mission a bit further away, a bit different that day? Yes, it, the clouds were about uh, 18,000 feet and impossible to bomb through we were reluctant to drop the bombs because we didn't want to hit our own men, which we did on occasion. And um, we dropped down below the clouds, and I was actually in a place to be able to see the landing at dawn. The ships were unbelievable, the number of ships in the English Channel from England to France and the movement and how they got through without killing each other is amazing to me. And I saw the beaches as the soldiers came in the first waves from 9,000 feet. And as the soldiers came ashore, you see them falling from being shot, hundreds of them machine gun from the cliffs overlooking the water. And thousands seemed to disappear in the water. And uh, one of the terrible things that I recall was being there and seeing it and not being able to help them. It made me want to cry. And uh, we did our part. 
dropped our bombs on the landing fields and, uh, and then we went back and reloaded for a second trip. So you went out twice that day or was it more than two missions? That's correct, yeah. And each time, Chuck, did you have to fly at below that 18,000 feet? You said you went down to eight or 9,000 feet. That must have been incredibly perilous. I mean, the amount of rate of fire that was on you must have been overwhelming. Yes, the Germans could actually shoot us with uh, handguns at that level. And I, I remember from the last time we spoke, Chuck, and uh, I urge our listeners to check out your first episode with us, that wasn't the first time that you had been uh, targeted at by handguns before, is it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just came back from Gold Beach last week, Chuck, and I can only imagine the sights and sounds you would have experienced as you were flying over the the landings on D-Day. Such flat beaches coming in. I mean, true killing zones that had to be overcome by sheer bravery and an insurmountable amount of force moving through and taking those German positions. After you'd experienced all of that and you had to head back after your second bombing run on D-Day, what was the feeling back at base? Was there a feeling that there had been some level of success, that that D-Day had been a success? Oh, yes. We felt like that. There were many places where they didn't have the cliffs to climb. There was a group. An awful, uh, I never did figure out why they wanted to land at that point with such a terrible way to get to the enemy. You had to climb a cliff and they didn't furnish anything to help you do that. And the Germans were sitting up there with machine guns, just mowing them down as they came ashore. Uh, I never did understand that. Did you ever hear of a pre-invasion exercise more than 30,000 men were assembled in the south of England where they practiced landings with tanks and using live ammunition. Operation Tiger, I think it was called. Yes, and uh, the Germans somehow got wind of this and sent in PT boats, torpedo boats, and thousands of men lost their lives in that. And this wasn't reported, as far as I know, to the public. No, it was, it was kept pretty shtum at the time. I mean, it was, uh, it was not a, uh, a resounding success, to say the least, as they were trying to get everything ready for D-Day. We actually, we've got an episode on that for our listeners with uh, an expert from that area. He's actually an expert at Plymouth University called uh, Harry Bennett. It is a fascinating history and the things we've learned over the years about what went wrong and why in that situation. But um, back to your mood in the mess in the base that night. Were you told by your officers that this was a turning point in the war? We were told that it was possibly the turning point of the war, but we're not told it was success by any means. We lost an awful lot of people. And there was a, a long way to go. Yeah, a long... We, we weren't as excited about how well we had done those first few hours. But uh, as the days went along, the next big mission for us was a place called Cannes, France. And uh, we bombed this place uh, about a half a mile wide and eight miles long, the entire 8th Air Force. How anything lived through that, I don't know, but some Germans did. Following that, our ground forces broke through, were never able to be stopped after that. Our, our own people stopped them because they were afraid they would get cut off in 
for many reasons. I don't know all the reasons why they stopped them from keeping going. But uh, that was the turning point as far as I was concerned when they broke through the lines of the Germans. As the U.S. Air Force moved towards the Pacific Theater, there was a, a shift, a change in air power strategy, in doctrine, especially as General Curtis LeMay took charge and Hansel was moved to different operations. In the European theatre, where you were, after D-Day, was there a continuation of precision bombing doctrine, or did you see precision start to give way to more of an area bombing strategy, or give way to more of the British way of bombing, as opposed to the American way of bombing? Well, are you familiar with the problem that the Americans and the British experienced at this time as to who was going to be in charge. No, tell us more. If we had known that there was such a difference of opinion, our spirits would have been lowered a a whole lot. But Eisenhower said, either you give me complete control or I'm taking my troops and going home. This was just a few days before D-Day with millions of people online. And here we are, the general such the highest level, were squabbling over who was going to be in charge of what. Uh, had we known that, we would have probably not felt good at all. But uh, I suppose it worked out. Uh, it may not have been completely good, but uh, it finally worked out in spite of, <laughs> of our differences. But uh, you're right, it became a tactical war and the bombing of the uh, supply lines and the supplies almost ceased. And uh, this disturbed our generals very much because we felt like we were doing a great service in destroying the, the ammunition and the gasoline sources. But uh, towards the end, the tactical bombing took over and we were helping the ground forces just ahead of the ground forces more than anything else. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and throughout June on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm marking the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio. It would be hard to think of Shakespeare without plays like Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Antony and Cleopatra, Macbeth, As You Like It, and A Winter's Tale. But without the first folio, none of these would have survived. This is not a book designed to be carried around. This is a book which establishes itself in the library, in the study, and that physicality tells us something about how the plays are being rebranded, reframed for a new generation. Throughout this month, I'm delving deep into the first folio, how it was produced, who made it, and to what extent it has ensured Shakespeare's enduring legacy. So do join me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, it makes perfect sense at that point in the war to start shifting towards these more tactical elements as well and to try and assist in that push through Europe and that vital push to move through and take Berlin as well. Now, I know you had so many missions during the Second World War in Europe. You and Emily's new book, 35 Missions to Hell and Back, documents all of these. And I urge our listeners to go out there to really buy the book and to explore your fascinating personal history of this period. But perhaps you could tell us about a couple of your other missions, like uh, the Frantic Mission. Oh, the Frantic Mission was an amazing thing. It, first of all, it was uh, dictated by President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin at Tehran. They determined that from a shuttle flight between England and Russia with stops and stopovers in Italy would be a good way to concentrate the efforts of each one of the powers. So woke us up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we said, we asked the, the sergeant in charge, where are we going? He said, uh, I don't know, but you'll be sorry. <laughs> so we were concerned. But anyway, we left England and flew past uh, all of the big cities of Bremen and Hamburg, and uh, we were afraid we were going to have to hit by at Berlin, but we kept going to a small, it was a place uh, that we dropped our bombs on the way to Russia. It was on the border of Germany and Poland. And uh, we flew from there to Warsaw. And we got hit by Germans at Warsaw and uh, lost one plane, and I was fortunate enough to correspond with the one of the men that was on that plane that got shot down at Warsaw. He lived to tell the story. We flew on from there across the steppes of Russia, thousand miles of nothing but no trees, no plants higher than two feet, mostly water and grass, and trenches running north and south by the hundreds, uh, maybe thousands, interspersed with 
evidence of a tremendous battle that had taken place with where hundreds and hundreds of tanks were destroyed and left in the field. Then we flew from there past one of the terrible places where the Stalag... Uh, Stalags. Stalagluf. I can't forget the name, but uh, said to one of my guys, I'd hate to be shot down, be interned where, where all of these people were being burned to death. Flew on from there to a place called Miracle Rod in, in the Ukraine and Russia. There were three groups of us, actually four counting the fighter group that went with us. By the way, can you imagine sitting in a tight plane? You can barely move for thousands of miles, not even being, being able to stretch your legs or anything. How long were you in the plane, Chuck? This mission doesn't seem to end. I mean, I know it's a frantic mission, but it's also the never-ending mission. Yes, that's right. Well, we landed at Mirgorod, and that evening, uh, there were three different places where the Americans landed. And one of them, the Germans came, followed us over there with bombers that night and bombed that base. And we lost 93 B-17s on the ground. Uh, that was Poltava. At Poltava. And uh, our fighter commander begged him to let us go up and shoot these planes that would have been a turkey shoot if he would let us go. But he said, no, we'll take care of it. They had two or three anti-aircraft guns. Might as well not have had any. So we lost all of these planes on the ground. From then, it was a mop-up situation. None of the men were hurt. They were not with their planes. We flew in there and picked up all the men and a lot of the equipment and went to Mirgorod, uh, which is down near the Black Sea. And uh, we were there for several days, and we were due to get bombed. But fortunately, a terrible storm came through about the time the Germans arrived, and they never did get to bomb our base there. But uh, while we were there, some civilians gathered around our plane, and uh, one of the men on our crew's name was Przeporka, which is Polish, and he spoke Polish. And although Russian and Polish are not the same, they are similar. And we were able to talk with him, whereas other planes, even uh, officers, uh, high officers didn't have what we had to, to be able to correspond with these people. But in the meanwhile, uh, uh, this uh, man named Alexandrov, we furnished him with uh, C and K rations and candy and chewing gum. And, and he was delighted with it. They would take the chewing gum without even taking the wrapper off and chew it <laughs> and, and loved it. But he was right along with us, and he took us to the Dnieper River. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dnieper. I'm not, no. But it's, it's a shallow river. Uh, it, it, it may be waist deep. It was deepest, maybe a little more than that. But he, he said, I want to show you something. The Russian people had stopped the advance of the Germans at Stalingrad 
and they were in retreat and they would come back through this area and they destroyed every building. There was not a building with a roof on it, just sidewalls. And there at the river, believe what I saw, the entire river from one side to the other was filled with German ammunition, every description. They were destroying it so that Russians could not use it uh, and also using it to cross the river. There was tons and tons of it in the river. So much so that it was coming out of the water, you could see it physically. Yes, and the water was all around on both sides. And we thanked him for his, uh, his hospitality and gave him some more canned goods that we had. Some of it was quite good. K-rations. K-rations. And so we had a, a great, great time. But uh, One second there, Chuck. I've heard you speak about your plane having 600 bullet holes in it, just about making it back over the, the White Cliffs of Dover. And, and for not a moment, I think you said, you know, you just your, your training kicks in. It's not about fear. It's about getting back. It must have given you a real appreciation at that time of just how hard the Russians had suffered and just what it was that you were fighting for. Absolutely. Absolutely. These were down-to-earth Russian people, and uh, they were driving American trucks. And the one funny thing about it, uh, they had been taught in an American school somewhere how to drive a truck. They didn't know how to. And they would not move until they blew the horn. So you could just see the instructor when he first introduced the vehicle to these Russians, that he would blow the horn, get their attention. And so the, the Russians felt that the thing wasn't going to go unless you blew the horn. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense if that's what you've been taught. And one of the things that we forget about this period is that there were a lot more cars in the United States before the war. So a lot more people knew how to drive. And so when they were developing the military trucks, they made them so that they would run a lot like the cars ran, so that, you know, GIs would be able to go in and drive them straight away. It, in Russia, in Britain even, and, you know, across Europe, far fewer people knew how to drive. And so they had to do this training, and uh, it makes sense. You beep the horn to go. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. You have a good knowledge of the, that uh, so many people don't, really no or not. One of the purposes of my book was to teach particularly young people what it was like and what what great sacrifices were made on all sides, not only our side, but the German side. The people suffered terribly. Let's not do this anymore. I hope they've learned. Hope from my book some of them will learn more. But after we left there and went to Italy, uh, another experience that was uh, not military, but fun. We had to leave one, one of our members on the plane all the time because the young Italians were stealing stuff off of the planes. So we, were, we had to, one person had to spend the night every night. And my turn one day, one night, it was a terrible storm, and it was during the night, and I had been listening to my radios, American programs, which I could hear in Russia. And uh, I was sitting in the pilot seat, 
and the storm came and started to, the wind was so bad that it started to bounce the plane. It moved over 200 yards, bouncing. Now, all these planes out there bouncing and parked out. They weren't close together, but thank goodness for it. But that was a terrible experience for me. I, I was helpless. <laughs> so you had to sit in that plane as it was bouncing around 200 yards, and you were completely helpless. There was nothing you could do. Nothing I could do. I, I was so thankful for when that night ended. But anyway, while there, I was informed of a, a pilot who was uh, in the weather end of the... Uh, reconnaissance, weather reconnaissance weather, squadron or something. And so to make some money, he took had him take the radios out of the back behind the pilot seat and put in another seat. And he was charging, as I remember it, $80 for anybody that wanted to go go with him on the weather patrol for that day. And uh, one of my greatest desires at the time was I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, I never was able to do it. I was tested for it, but my eyes were, one eye was stronger than the other, and my depth perception would not allow me to be a pilot. So I've always wanted to ride in the pilot in a fighter plane. This is a P-38, the twin fuselage. You're familiar. I borrowed $80 from my pilot straight. And he said, you go you go on, you, you get yourself killed. I'm going to see if you get port martialed. <laughs> 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 anyway, I think he had once failed in, in making it through fighter pilot, but he was demoted or whatever they do to you made a bomber pilot instead. But anyway, I got in that, that plane early one morning, and we were going to uh, map the weather over the Mediterranean. And we flew through Rome, across the southern part of France. Uh, we could see Spain made a left turn and went across the Mediterranean to Africa. But when he took off, James, he... He started spiraling as soon as he was high enough to, to spiral. And he kept spiraling, and it seemed like forever, till it reached a height of maybe 25,000 feet, and he leveled off. And I was so disoriented, I, I didn't know where I was. But finally, he came through on the speaker, and he said, you okay? I, I said, I think you're trying to, to show me what it's like to be a fighter pilot. And he laughed and said, well, we're going to fly license quiet for a while and map the weather. And we flew back towards um, Greece. And he said, uh, I'm going to show you how it's like to fly upside down. So he flipped over on the back and across the Adriatic Sea, down, say, 100 feet off the water. What a beautiful sight to see. But I was hanging in there, and it was frightening to me. It was like playing for him. That was one another one of the experiences that, that uh, stand out in my time overseas. Well, you asked for it, Chuck. You even paid for the privilege to be taken on that disorientating, hellish ride up to 25,000 feet and then back down again right up to water level. But like you say, it must have been amazing, and the views... The views over the sea there and over Greece must have just been phenomenal. Yes, it was. But those, 
there's several other places. One one where we were on a trip from England to Russia, the ball turret gunner called up on the intercom and said, uh, this is a ball turret gunner. I, I need to go to the bathroom. Well, nobody said anything for a little bit, but we were all laughing because you can't imagine with all the clothes that you've got to get through to either go to the bathroom, the harnesses and the uh, flying suits. Anyway, he said, okay, Maggie, you go ahead and uh, let me know when you're through. They got him up under the ball turret. He had to hold a oxygen bottle in one hand, go through the radio compartment, into the Bombay where there was a, a tube, rubber tube that ran through the Bombay with a funnel on it. That was the bathroom. Well, you got one hand here and you got, you got to hold on to something. Then you got to get out all of these clues to go, go to the bathroom. And uh, he's off the intercom. So he, the pilot says, is he up there yet? And waste gunner said, yes, he's up there. And then, the pilot takes evasive action up and down sideways around. Oh my word! That that'll that'll teach you for needing to go to the bathroom, oh, won't no. it? I can imagine that none of you ever made that decision That's again. Right. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, Chuck, Emily, thank you both so much for your time once again. It has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk with you both and to hear some more amazing stories about your time during the Second World War, and especially hearing about D-Day. An underrated aspect of D-Day is the role of air power during that time, and also what it was like conducting those daylight precision bombing raids. But you've got to tell us, once again, where can people read more all about this? Give us the title of your book. The title of the book is 35 Missions to Hell and Back by Charles Chuck Richardson, and it's available from all the major book outlets uh, in the United States. Uh, from Amazon, UK, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. This is what we like to hear. You can get it everywhere that we buy books, and we'll make sure we put a link into the, the show description as well. Thank you both so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.